tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The world's most active volcano is erupting once again. Kilauea is showing signs that magma is moving toward the surface of Halemaumau Crater. The Hawaiian Volcano Observatory assembled field crews to respond. Geologist Drew Downs is part of the team. He spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote this morning and said he arrived at the crater just 30 seconds after the eruption started. It was exciting. You know, we kind of had a feeling that an eruption might start, but of course, predicting an eruption is always difficult. It can always make a fool of you by saying, oh, eruption's going to start and then nothing happens. But we had signals throughout the day that magma was moving closer to the surface. So the seismicity and the tilt alarm that we have programmed started to go off. Eruptions can be scary and exciting, but um, in Hale Ma'uma'u itself, you know, it's far from any houses, it's far from any people. So it's always amazing to see an eruption start up here, knowing that, you know, there's nothing in the way for the lava to plow through. It's, um, it's a joy to watch from the national park, knowing that, you know, there are no hazards really associated with it, other than the sulfur plume that's coming off of the crater floor. And people have been captivated by images of lava from Kilauea and then recently from Mauna Loa on Hawaii Island. But for folks who don't have the ability to be as close to an eruption as you are able to in your work, what do you hear and smell and feel when you're that close to the moment of an eruption? Yeah, all of your senses kind of get in on the action. Um, even though... I'm standing on the crater rim that's, you know, 300 yards or so above the lava lake. You can still feel the heat coming off of it. And, you know, it's not a super intense heat from this distance. But on a cold winter's day up here at the summit, um, it definitely warms you. And at the same time, you know, you've got lava fountains that are throwing lava up in the air. Sometimes um, they can be as loud as almost a jet engine noise. Um, And other times when they die back down, it can just be almost silence. At the same time, you know, the lava coming out is molten and it starts to cool. And as it cools, basically what it's forming is almost a glassy crust. And you can hear what sounds like popping and tinkling of almost breaking glass sound as the lava cools and then breaks apart as new lava is in place. And at the same time, as I said, there's a sulfur plume that is very prevalent coming off the crater floor. And for anyone who has ever been around sulfur, you know, you get this very rotten egg smell. And it just gets more intense and overwhelming the the stronger it gets and the more in the plume you get. So it's one of those things that um, standing here last night, I was out here uh, till about 10 o'clock last night, and you didn't even need uh, a flashlight or a headlamp. You know, it's so bright, the glow coming off and reflecting off the clouds and uh, the crater walls that you can walk around um, with the full moon last night and the glow coming off the lake um, unaided. And it's just an amazing sight to see. Mm, that definitely paints a picture, Drew. Thanks for sharing that experience with us. I know that because of the timing of the end of the last eruption of Mauna Loa and Kilauea, there were some questions geologists were posing about whether or not there could be a connection. How does this new development, the restarting of the eruption of Kilauea, impact those questions that geologists are asking about these two volcanoes and their relationship? So I don't think anyone at the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory was too surprised to see Kilauea, Kilauea restart. I mean, obviously it's an active volcano and we knew there was going to be eruptions in the future, but it was one of those things that, you know, I don't think anyone expected the pause in the eruption to be, you know, a very long one, um, just because it seems like, you know, Mauna Loa and Kilauea, as magma accumulates under the surface, they both inflate, they both deflate, and it's unclear exactly how those relate to each other and um, have an effect on each other's magma system. But as Mauna Loa, you know, relaxed and stopped its eruption, it, it wasn't unsurprising that it's repressurizing this magma system, that it might have an effect on Kilauea. There's still a lot of 
questions that need answered in that regard. Um, but I think that the data is now coming in that we can have a stronger look at that and start coming up with a model. That was geologist Drew Downs with the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory with the latest on the eruption of Kilauea. He spoke to HBR's Savannah Harriman Pote this morning. The eruption is confined to the Kilauea Summit region within Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. No surrounding areas are at risk at this time. And January happens to be Volcano Awareness Month. The observatory will have a series of talks and outreach events on eruption preparedness over the next few weeks. Look for links on the conversation page of our website later today. Listening to the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, Olehua, Onihau, Okawa, Oahu, Omoroka, Olana, Omau, Okaholabe, Ohavai. Today marks two years since the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. That brings to mind another January insurrection for today's quiz. This one happens to be a little closer to home. On January 17th, 1893, a group of conspirators calling themselves the Committee on Safety announced the overthrow of the Hawaiian Kingdom. The chair of the committee, uh, uh, Henry Cooper, read the following declaration to a crowd outside of Iolani Palace. First, the Hawaiian monarchical system of government is hereby abrogated. Second, a provisional government for the control and management of public affairs and the protection of public peace is hereby established to exist until terms of union with the United States of America have been negotiated and agreed upon, end quote. Unlike two years ago when rioters post and live stream on social media allowed the world to follow the Capitol siege in real time, News traveled more slowly a hundred years ago. When you, the U.S. president learned of the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom, he ordered an investigation, replaced the flag of the insurrectionists in Honolulu with the Hawaiian kingdom flag, and ultimately declared to the U.S. Congress that the overthrow had been illegal. For today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know the name of this U.S. president. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. Pick up a reusable HPR tote bag if you're the first one to get it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareetHawaii.com. has learned that a petition to oppose the nomination of Governor Josh Green's pick to head the Department of Land and Natural Resources is circulating this week. Don Chang is a former Deputy Attorney General to the department and who started a company called Kuivalu Consulting. Her clients have included the Honolulu Authority for Rapid Transportation, Sandwich Isles Communications, and other developers like General Growth and Howard Hughes Corporation. The land use issues have touched the State Historic Preservation Division and the Burial Council within DLNR. Native Hawaiian activist Eddie uh, Halealo'ayao is behind what he's calling the 2023 Kue petition. The two previously worked together. He is asking the governor to withdraw Chang's name, calling her a developer's consultant. Chang was in our studios this morning to explain her position and what she brings to the table. My mother is Edna Kealoha Ho'okano. She's from the Ahupua of Kahalu'u. Her family has kuleana lands at Mauka, and they, and in fact, my tutu is buried on that kuleana land. 
as well as other family members who are in unmarked burials. But they grew taro up there. They also had a fishing village. My uncle was a great squid man, and another one was a Kona of crab man. But I grew up, you know, I was very fortunate, and I went to school. I wanted to be a community organizer, worked for Queen Liliokalani's Children's Center, organized in Waimanalo. But what I realized as I was working with the families and the children is that many Hawaiians have challenges and systemic challenges. And fortunately, with the vision of C.J. Richardson with the law school, I was able to go to law school. And, you know, C.J.'s vision was, one, to provide access to affordable legal education for Hawaii residents, in particular Native Hawaiians. But the kuleana we have is, then it is to provide access to affordable legal services. So I clerked for Judge Walter Heen, Intermediate Court of Appeals, and then I went to work for the Attorney General's office. So I recognize that Edward Talialoha has some concerns about my nomination, but he and I worked together when he was at SHPD, and I was a Deputy Attorney General advising the department. But the department is full of people who have great passion. They want to be there. They are there taking care of the lands, the waters, and the resources. Great aloha for them. But what I also realized working at DLNR as their deputy is that many times issues would come before the land board for decision or before the water commission, and that's the first time the community ever heard about it. So they're angry. The land board is angry because they have to make a hard decision. So I decided to leave the attorney general's office and open a very small practice. And my practice was primarily facilitating culturally contentious and sensitive issues. So for a lot of the beginning of my career, I did do a lot of work on Native Hawaiian burials. And I do want to cover, I know people have had concerns about my work with Kawaiha'o Church, but my work was with a lot of developers on help, helping them navigate through the burial laws. I'd like to believe respect from many of those families that I worked with. And in fact, Paulette Anohe Kalekini, she filed a lawsuit against Hart because they did not comply with the law. And as a result, their heart project was stopped. But it was Paulette Kalikini who recommended to Dan Grabowskis, at that time the CEO, that he should hire me to help with heart getting in compliance. So fast forward, a lot of my work as a consultant has been to create safe spaces for good conversation, to ensure that people have been disenfranchised from the process, in particular Native Hawaiians, have a seat at the table. So a lot of projects, whether they've been to facilitate the 14 meetings held by the Department of Interior on federal recognition, whether it's been the development of the Mauna Kea Comprehensive Management Plan, or whether it's been working with federal and state agencies. I was not there to advocate, but I was there to create a process that provided access to those who have normally not been able to participate to participate in the process. Well, this week, there are members in the community, including Eddie Halealoa Ayao, who have started a petition to oppose your confirmation. And they say that while you would be the first Native Hawaiian woman to lead the Department of Land and Natural Resources, they say it's not a matter of race or or gender, that they say it's about integrity because of some of these positions that you took and and the advice that you gave Kauai Ha'o Church uh, on the burials. And, you know, I've been to... a number of those burial council meetings yeah. and uh, you know the protests and the depth of the pain is the pain yeah. the pain is very deep it's it's immeasurable i mean Catherine, i did work at kavaihelm when they first approached me they were planning to do an underground parking garage at Likiki, and I had recommended to them, you really should reconsider. Try not to disturb any of the area there. Work within Likiki Hall. I was a consultant. I was not their lawyer. I will share with you that I, the attorney general that was advising SHPD, as well as Kavai Ha'o's lawyer, we all believed that Kavai Ha'o was a cemetery. And under the law, Chapter 60, cemeteries are exempt from 60. But we were proven wrong. The court said, nope, this is a Native Hawaiian burial site. I do not recall at any time that I had advised them not to do an archaeological inventory survey. That wasn't my call. I did share with someone in an email that there's two types of burials, one an inadvertent and one a previously identified. But when you talk about pain, 
I will share with you that probably was one of the hardest projects I've ever worked on because I know that the families and the congregation of Kauaihao, it was painful. For many of them, that was their ohana. And so, it's still not resolved. And, it's, and, you know, and now I sit in a position at DLNR. But for me, this is really a family matter. I have not been briefed by the SHPD or Oahu Island Burial Council. I recognize that I probably will become a lightning rod, so it's probably better that I step back from them. But I want to help in any way that we can at DLNR to facilitate some closure for that. I did eventually terminate my role with Kavaiha'o. And I recommended that you really should reconsider not building Likeke Hall. But again, I was not their attorney. I was their consultant. I didn't make any decisions. The decision about whether to do an archaeological inventory survey is really one with the State Historic Preservation Division. But it is painful. I recognize many of these situations where burials are unearthed, that families feel this passion. And I aloha those. I aloha those. Even Eddie Ayao, his commitment to take care of Ivi Kupuna, all of the cultural descendants, that is an extremely heavy kuleana that they share. My family is buried on our kuleana lands, and we would do anything to protect those. Well, you know, I did uh, talk with him, and he does believe very strongly that, you know, you tried to argue the legal position that y- you were recommending, uh, but because you were a consultant, you know, the courts didn't, uh, didn't agree. So he believes that you tried to circumvent the law uh, in that case. He also brings up the Mapulehu burials on Molokai, that there was a disturbance of 60 sets of remains, and, and he says the fine would have been up to $600,000, you know, 10000 per violation, and he was recommending $300,000 fine. And at the end of the day, it came down to uh, one violation and $10,000. I think there's a lot more to that. There's always two sides, right? And Eddie Ayao is correct. There was a massive disturbance. This was a landowner who was doing farming. She was excavating, and she denied that she did anything wrong. But clearly, pursuant to the investigation, it revealed that Evie Kupuna were disturbed. She had pushed a lot of the piles, and you could see burials in them. Now, this was the first burial case that we were going to litigate. And we decided, I was at the Attorney General's office at that time, we decided to take that case to court. We sued her. That's the first time that this has ever happened. So that was historic, that the State Historic Preservation Division, Department of Land and Natural Resources, were going to aggressively pursue legal action against a landowner who violated the law. Going through that process, it was very clear that the judge who was hearing the case wanted us to find a settlement. So the Attorney General's office, we had to really think about what is it that we wanted to accomplish. One, we got a fine from her. We got her to stop. But we set a precedent that the state was not going to tolerate landowners who violated the law. Now, clearly, Eddie Ayao wanted a lot more. But we as a state with the Attorney General's office had to think about a much broader picture. What happens if we would have lost? What happens if the court found that we didn't prevail? So for us, it was more important from a state position to establish precedent that the state was going to aggressively pursue anyone who violated the law. Eddie Ayao has said that they are going to fight your confirmation. We saw what happened with Carlton Ching. Yes. The perception was that he was a developer's guy. I think Eddie holds that view Mm -hmm. uh, with where you come from and and the clients that you've uh, advised in your career. I'm disappointed, but, you know, aloha his passion. I think this is a historic moment. You have three Native Hawaiians leading Department of Land and Natural Resources. I will be the first Native Hawaiian woman as a chair. Laura Ka'akua is the first deputy, and Kaleo Manuel is the deputy of the Water Commission. Historic. I would hope that the Native Hawaiian community would look upon that and applaud or at least acknowledge Governor Green's recognition that the Department of Land and Natural Resources, which touches all lands, public lands, waters, natural and cultural resources, that we as a leadership team have the opportunity 
to work with the community, and in particular, the Native Hawaiian community, to start the healing, to start the efforts to move us forward. I am sorry about what happened to Carlton Ching. However, I think I bring a very different skill set. I'm a lawyer. I've worked at the Department of Land and Natural Resources. I'm Native Hawaiian. I'm a woman. I think the experiences I bring to the table are varied. They reflect both a balance between government agencies, developers, and the community. That's what I've dedicated my life to. I'm a process person. There are much smarter persons than me on substance. So I am a process person who believes in creating spaces for good conversations where hard decisions have to be made. I believe in informed decision-making, and that's what I think I bring to the table at DLNR. Carlton Ching ended up uh, withdrawing his his name at the end. Uh, The group says that they had tried to address this with uh, Governor Green, you know, before this moved along in the process, and uh, he's held fast Mm -hmm. uh, to this team. I mean, I, I think the governor and Mrs. Green shared this strong sentiment about finding opportunities to heal with the Hawaiian community, whether it's Mauna Kea. And I, I will acknowledge, I did the comprehensive management plan for Mauna Kea, also did an independent assessment. Now, while I can sit on the Mauna Kea authority by law, there is an ex officio. I have chosen, as a result of my previous work with Mauna Kea, not to sit on the board, but rather to delegate that. But I think that this is an opportunity for us to move forward. I think this... This team brings great hope to our ability with our collective experience in land, water, and resources to try to find a path forward to work with the community. But given your position on on Mauna Kea and your work there and your work with these other hot-button issues, whether it's with the Burial Council or other areas of the State Historic Preservation Department division, uh, do you think you can be an effective leader given, you know, you've had this history? You know, Catherine, I I would like people to understand that my role in all of these projects, I was not advocating. I've never worked for TMT. TMT has never been a client. I was not advocating for telescope development. I was not advocating for federal recognition. I was not advocating for Kawaiha'o to develop that. My role as a consultant was to design a process to engage with the community that has normally not had a seat at the table. So when I did Mauna Kea Comprehensive Management Plan, before I had any public hearing, we held over 200 small talk stories. When we did the public hearings for the Department of Interior on Federal Recognition, very painful. I cried after every single one of those meetings. For Hawaiians, that was historic. We'd had 500 people at each of these meetings. We always created space for kupuna at the front of the room. We always asked kupuna to speak first. We always opened with a pule. So I have tried to design processes that are culturally sensitive, that acknowledge that for many local residents, including Hawaiians, they don't feel comfortable coming up to a podium. So how do we create the opportunities for them to participate? And I believe that's what I bring to the department. Fair, objective, and someone who designs a process to ensure that people have a meaningful opportunity to participate. Decisions will be made, but I believe if people feel like they've been heard, listened, they've had a chance to participate, to have their input, They may not like the decision, but perhaps they may feel more accepting of it. You know, I recognize stewarding these lands, we need the community support. So I hope I have the opportunity to be confirmed and move forward. But if not, we'll see. Okay. Eyes wide open. Eyes wide open. Eyes wide open. Thank you so much, Don. Thank you so much, Catherine. I greatly appreciate this time. That was Don Chang, who's serving as the chair of the land board with the Department of Land and Natural Resources. A confirmation hearing uh, has yet to be set. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, committed to providing Hawaii Island's ohana with comprehensive health care, island-wide. HICommunityHealthCenter.org. 
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Amy B. Scher, author of How to Heal Yourself When No One Else Can. And next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how to heal yourself using simple self-healing tools. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. Oahu's vacancy rates for industrial space hit record lows in the last quarter of 2022, less than 1%, which may very well be the lowest in the country. We talked to Mike Kamasu, head of Colliers International's Consulting and Research Division, and Senior Vice President Bill Froelich. We start off, though, with Hamasu. Just comparing that nationwide, that puts us at perhaps the lowest vacancy rate in the country, and also that also is a historic low rate for as long as Colliers has been tracking the marketplace, it's hit a, a low that's never been hit before. So basically what that means is that if you're an industrial business or a tenant looking for space, it just has demonstrated how challenging it is to actually find an appropriate warehouse space for your business. Because of the what we call it as a tight market conditions, asking rents or the rents that landlords are preparing to charge their tenants for has escalated to a record high level of $1.48. So what that also means is that it has become even more challenging for industrial businesses to not only find space, but also to afford the rents that are being asked for in the marketplace. I think that's a pretty good summary of where we are. Bill, do you have any additional comments? I think it's worth noting that our industrial market in total size on Oahu is just over 40 million square feet. You know, that puts us in line in terms of size with markets like Huntsville, Alabama, and Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and New Mexico, and other really small markets. But we have a population of over a million people and then over 9 million visitors. So on a per square foot basis of occupied industrial space, divided by population, it's no wonder that we have a vacancy rate like we do, given the demand that's there and the lack of total space that we have. Mike, you've been been around for a while, and I remember there was a time when we actually saw churches moving into some of the industrial areas because, you know, they had places to rent and these churches were growing, and that was Mm -hmm. kind of a really unusual trend. Yeah, that's a very unusual trend. And in fact, it's because of the the way our land use ordinance is that the zoning had allowed for church use of industrial zone properties. If you're a church trying to find space now, it would be uh, virtually impossible to to compete with other businesses in terms of the industrial marketplace to try to find a space. So let's let's say you're a fairly large church and you're trying to find a a 10 or 20,000 square foot space. Those listings are, are down to... You know, island-wide, we tracked at the end of the fourth quarter that there were only 61 available listings for industrial space. And it just shows you, I mean, in our market, there's maybe 15 brokers, and that only leaves you with basically four listings per person, which is a ridiculously low number to try to help your client find a space. And two, if you're a church trying to find a space, that makes it even more more challenging. And Bill, what does this mean for property owners who may be trying to get their parcel zone industrial, you know, or to open an industrial park. I mean, if the demand is there, what are the barriers in getting that, you know, opened up? In my career, there hasn't been much. In this case, it would probably be a down zone to industrial or up zone, however you, you think of it to industrial. It's been incredibly hard for new industrial products to come online. And, and when people have the foresight to change zoning for industrial it takes years to do it the land that was set to be absorbed by industrial owner users over the next three or four years was bought by costco who bought 45 acres at the end of last year and then amazon who bought 15 acres on sand island access road 
and then 50 acres in Kapolei. And that was the land that was set aside, so to speak, for smaller parcels to be sold and developed by industrial owner users. And so at this point, we don't have any raw land to, to sell or to develop. And the next industrial raw land that is set to come out to the market probably won't come out for two or three more years. And so with a, a 1% vacancy rate with no little or no land available to sell or to build on, we think market conditions are going to persist in this way. Is there anywhere that it's particularly tight? It's funny you should say that, but uh, practically every industrial park is faced with 2% or lower in terms of vacancy rates. So if you say tight, you couldn't be any tighter in terms of market conditions for many of the industrial parks out there. On a different note that Bill mentioned, in addition to the lack of available land, you know, even if you got access to a vacant parcel, construction costs have escalated at a rapid pace too. So it's very difficult for investors or investor developers to actually enter this market because of the lack of available land and industrial pricing for land has gone up to construction costs and construction labor costs have gone up significantly. So the combination of both of those factors makes it really tough to expand the inventory for the industrial market. And Bill, you talked about those uh, parcels that Amazon bought. So it just sounds like the, the big boys have scooped up, uh, you know, whatever large areas that there were to be had uh, or to be developed. I mean, they've got it sewn up. But, you know, I mean, we're reading the headlines about, you know, Amazon and those types of companies are are scaling back their workforce. But do you think that's going to impact their plans out here in Hawaii? That has not occurred in Hawaii, at least for the Sand Island project that's well underway, being constructed now. And from what I was told, it was one of the later projects to get greenlit before the news came out that, that you and I have heard or read about Amazon scaling back in some ways. And Amazon in total occupies over 250 million square feet of industrial space in the U.S. And remember, Oahu is a 40 million square foot market. At one point, Amazon was talking about shedding 30 or 40 million square feet of the 250 million square feet that they occupy. And then they had a separate development pipeline that they were also building to, which included this Sand Island development. And Mike's completely right about construction costs. I was on a call yesterday and we were talking about steel and rebar and the contractor was telling me that all of the iron base in the rebar comes directly from Ukraine and Russia. And that because of the conflict in Ukraine, we're seeing rebar prices, you know, in some cases double. And there's a different story for, it seems like every piece of raw material that goes into an industrial building, you know, roofing material has this issue because of supply chain in this country or sand for concrete. There's a lack of, because of some other issues, supply chain, COVID shutdown, geopolitics. It's just all kind of come at once. Of these industrial properties, you know, that we're talking about, does it make a difference if it's leasehold uh, or fee simple? There's not much leasehold raw land available for a master lessee to take on and then consider developing on. Most of the leasehold land, which is about 50% of our industrial market, almost 20 million square feet of our industrial market is considered leasehold. Most of that is built out, and most of that is in our urban core, in the Mapunapuna or Halava areas, Kapalama. Those are some of what we consider to be leasehold, and most of that you know, is in our central core. Waipahu, Pearl City, Kapolei, most of that is fee simple. Not all of it, but most of it. If the process to rezone land to provide for more industrial parks, uh, you know, is long and torturous, <laughs> what does that mean then for, for the outlook, let's say, you know, a couple of years down the road? In all likelihood, the challenging tight market conditions were at sub 1% may persist for quite a while because, one, you don't have any new speculative development happening and you don't have very much new land that's coming available in the next year or two that, you know, if you're a prospective industrial or warehouse using tenant, you've got to be extremely proactive to try to even locate a space that you might be able to expand to or relocate to. So I was down in the Kalihi area looking to buy a plate lunch and I happened to go down a side street off. I can't remember if it was Home Rule or Kalihi or one of those streets down there. And I noticed that there were, you know, just a number of residential areas that are just crammed in between of the large warehouse spaces. <laughs> I mean, what's going to happen to those people that, you know, still live in a industrial park? 
the zoning change that occurred in Kalihi preceded my career, but I, I believe that occurred in the 60s, and Kalihi was, was a residential area and then was rezoned to industrial. And some of the parcels there that you see, all of them are mostly 5,000 square feet or so. Some are a little bigger, some are a little smaller. So, you know, if a residential home occupier sold that parcel because it's zoned industrial and that potential user tore down that house and then built a warehouse on that 5,000 square foot parcel, the result is a 3,000 square foot warehouse. And so even if Kalihi completely changed itself to industrial, it, it really wouldn't move the needle on product so to speak. Most of the rezoning that occurs to industrial occurs from ag land. And, you know, that's an uphill battle, right? So if there's residential near that ag land that's proposed to be zoned industrial, you would have people with homes that would be concerned about typical industrial uses. So I, I think that's, that's one example of why industrial land is hard to rezone. I think industrial land also somewhat gets forgotten. I mean, retail and office is a little sexier, and and it's a gentler zoning. So a a B-zone parcel of land might have a a retail use or an office use or a medical use or, you know, something that doesn't have the perception that it's an industrial warehouse. So I, I guess I'm just looking down the road, you know, with our economy, if there are any other, like, new businesses that want to set up shop here or looking for a industrial space, it's just not to be had, and the prices they're going to pay if they do find it are going to be pretty high. Absolutely. In fact, that price increase is already demonstrated, and you mentioned these uh, industrial zone parcels in Kalihi that are 5,000 square foot or smaller that are previously residential and are being converted into industrial, well, the land for that particular type of parcel, you know, we're, we're seeing prices in excess of $200 a square foot. So it just becomes very difficult, the cycle to go through where if you're an industrial tenant trying to find a space in urban Honolulu and you do come across a parcel of land, it's going to cost you significantly to, one, acquire the land and then two, build on the land and then, you know, you end up with a 3,000 square foot warehouse which may not even be large enough to suffice for your, your business's operation. So it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult, challenging situation to be in. That was Collier's International's Bill Frolic and Mike Kamasu talking about a report on the historic low vacancy rate of industrial space on Oahu that was released today. It's time now for your backer quiz answer. We wanted to know which U.S. president responded to the illegal overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom during his first year in office. 130 years ago this month, insurrectionists backed by U.S. troops declared an end to the Hawaiian monarchy. They lowered the Hawaiian kingdom flag, made an appeal to the United States government for Hawaii to be formally annexed as a territory. In his last days as U.S. President, Benjamin Harrison sent an an annexation treaty to the U.S. Senate for confirmation. But his successor withdrew the treaty and called for an investigation uh, into the overthrow. The investigation concluded that the coup against Queen Liliuokalani would have failed without the presence of U.S. forces. It was President Grover Cleveland, the answer to today's backyard quiz that urged for power to be returned to the Queen and stated the provisional government owes its existence to an armed invasion by the United States by an act of war of substantial wrong has been done. And the winner today, Robert Oliveira Jr. from Owyanai Uka, you got it right. That's today's Backyard Quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual courses such as art, film, history, and gardening. Classes begin Tuesday, January 17th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Join us for a live taping of The Splendid Table at Hawaii Theater on January 18. Join Splendid Table host Francis Lamb for conversations with local guests about Hawaii's food culture and cuisine. 
Get your tickets at hawaiipublicradio.org slash events. Co-presented by HPR and the Culinary Institute of the Pacific. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. This weekend, the very first performance will take place on the new stage at Diamond Head Theater. It's a special production for a fundraiser for the theater. The general public will get its chance to see the first performance of Cinderella come January 20th. We got a sneak preview of the brand new facility last month. Artistic director John Rampage led tours and shared the countless painstaking details from door locks to seat colors, decisions, decisions, decisions. But there was one clear mandate, he said, from theater management. More toilets in the women's restroom. It has been an ongoing complaint for years about the ladies' restroom. So a couple years ago, we did expand it. We put in, I think, three extra. Now, if you go to a Broadway show and pay $250 for a seat, the line is just as long. It, it was not a unique to Diamond Head Theater type of thing. But from day one with the architects, Dina was the standard bearer, the champion of the ladies' restrooms, and they were going to add as many stalls as possible and every time we would go in to discuss a small edit she'd make sure that those ladies rooms did not get cut down in any way shape or form that was her mission well after that introduction we knew we had to talk to diamond heads dina dre we called her this morning it seems silly but restrooms are important to people just like parking is important to people and both of those figure in greatly to any theater in my mind and we had not enough women's toilets in our old theater. When I would stand in the back of the theater and look at people lined up at intermission and they would look at me with their arms crossed and giving me stink eye like, you need to do something about this, I would feel bad. I just felt terrible that people were spending their time, instead of going outside and having a glass of wine or a candy bar, they were standing in line at the ladies' room. So when we started designing the new theater, I made that a priority. And I think we succeeded because we have almost doubled the number of women's toilets. Yes. Well, you will not get stink eye with this first production. <laughs> exactly. You know, and we've got Cinderella opening up. You do have an event coming up this Saturday, a special event where actually there'll be the first production on stage. Exactly. We're doing a little show. It's only about a 30 or 40 minute show just to whet people's appetite about the new theater, about what the capability is as far as being able to sit in the seats and see singing and some dancing on our stage. And these are our donors. We need to thank them, of course, and we are glad to have them coming to our grand opening, which is a fundraiser. We're thanking them and we're taking their money, frankly, but, <laughs> but that's the way it goes in nonprofit work. But in any case, we're really excited about this, and then we're going to have dinner catered by Chai's under the stars in KCC's parking lot, which will be really nice, right across the street. Yes, and what made me think of this was I was at the farmer's market, and they said that the farmer's market this weekend isn't happening because you've got to prepare for that event. But it's a big mahalo to the donors who have stuck by you and got a chance to maybe see their seats <laughs> uh, exactly. last month. And, you know, you do have plaques everywhere thanking the folks whose money made this new theater possible. We couldn't have done it, really. It was across the board, the entire community. I mean, there's an expression that it takes a village. This took the city, the state. Everyone had to play a part because this is an extraordinary amount of money for us. We don't raise this kind of money on a regular basis. We raise about a million annually to keep the doors open and the lights on, but to raise tens of millions of dollars, it was a big stretch for us as a staff and as a board. And without the community support and some real miracles happening, we wouldn't be opening our theater this weekend. Well, I drive by there every day and to see the progress. And you folks got that theater up pretty fast, you know, lickety split. It was, it was amazing. It was amazing. Two years. I mean, really, we signed the contract and broke ground in the middle of the pandemic, October 2020, when everyone was terrified about what the world was going to be like, and we just had to cross our fingers and hope for the best. And the construction company, Ally Builders, really put their pedal to the metal and got it up in two years. It was pretty amazing. I was very honored to be on that tour, the sneak preview last month, and I have a background in technical theater, so I was oohing and aahing at the catwalk and, oh, you know, the bird's yeah. nest and, you know, the lighting board. And so, to me, it was just fabulous. And, you know, having just seen Hamilton, and I was, I just loved 
of that rotating stage. Are we going to have one of those at Diamond um, Theater? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> We're still not at that capacity. I mean, Blaisdell Concert Hall has wonderful capabilities that would still be probably beyond our community theater level. But I imagine that we could build a turntable at some point for a show that called for it. I think that this is such a big step up for us from the old theater. I mean, the old theater was a movie house. And for us to have motorized rigging and catwalks, I mean, people would be up on ladders in the old theater. So it's just a dream come true for the creative staff to be able to work with such a high level of technology and theatrical special effects. Oh, yes. When you get a brand new theater, you know, with some state-of-the-art bells and whistles, it's impressive. I could just see flats flying in and around, and and the possibilities are just, oh, my gosh, it just opens up a whole new world for tech theater. And we expect that to grow. I mean, in the beginning, it's going to take us a while to get our feet on the ground here and get the staff trained and the technology under our belt. But eventually, I think the magic will be happening. The magic, yes. And you've got magic coming up with the next production, with the first production, Cinderella. Cinderella, yep, Cinderella. We're opening with this. And John picked this for a couple of reasons. One, he knows the show well. And this is a brand new theater. I mean, honestly, this is down to the wire. We didn't know if we were even going to be able to open. Construction always is a challenge, and to open the doors of a new theater was challenged timing-wise. So John wanted a show that he really knew well, that he felt comfortable with. He loves this show, and he feels like it appeals to both adults and children because it's one of the more well-known versions of Cinderella. It's the one that was on TV a million years ago with Leslie Ann Warren. Oh, and I it love has that. It has some comedy in it. It's charming. And it was just a dream come true kind of a show that when the slipper fits and that kind of parallels our dream here to have that happen, to have us to be literally transformed by many fairy godmothers, frankly, into the brand new theater. It's kind of nice to have that parallel for our first show. Yes, I mean, I can imagine everybody's like, pinch me, you know, is this real? I know, (laughs) exactly, exactly. Yeah, we have our very own golden carriage. So that's, that's a pretty cool show to be opening with. And then are there still tickets? There are a few tickets. You know, unfortunately, for people who are looking for tickets, there aren't many left. We will continue to open up seats as people cancel. But this show has proved to be unbelievably popular. I think people are eager to see the new theater and also eager to see Cinderella. So that created a real nice for us demand, but it is a little tight. We can't extend it anymore because we have another show right on its heels, and that's La Cage Faux, which opens in March. So hopefully everyone who wants to see Cinderella will get in to see it. That was Dina Dre, Executive Director of the Diamond Hit Theater. She spoke about the desire to improve the audience's theater-going experience. Check out the 10 new toilets. The new theater opens to the public later this month. In my own little corner, in my own little chair, I can be whatever I want to be. Well, as we embark on a new year, we went out to ask our neighbors about their hopes for 2023, and we want to share them with you. I'm John. I'm from Michigan. I'm in residency right now. Got a year and a half of that left, so looking to just continue to keep growing as a doctor and then also trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon this April. So, yeah. My name is Madeline and I'm from Michigan. My hopes, I would have to say, are health, happiness, and hopefully to start our family. Uh, Marcos, um, originally from Hilo, grew up in Las Vegas. A lot of people have been struggling in 2022 with um, inflation and just the prices of everything going up. So I hope 2023 is a lot kinder to all of us and more positive and things are feeling like they're getting back to normal post-COVID. So I hope that continues too and can just get our community back. I'm Mia Yoshimoto. I'm from Kapolei. I hope to smile every day and hug my cats every day. My name is Hudson Hebel. I'm from Pompeii. Hopefully, everything will be back to normal, you know. <laughs> Happy New Year to everybody who's listening and who's not listening. Have a wonderful New Year. 
Put your hopes up. My name is Yodine. I'm from Honolulu. I just got out of the hospital about two weeks ago. So I know I always do a New Year's resolution of trying to be healthy in terms of what I eat. So I'm definitely going to do that because I suffered the consequences two weeks ago. So health-wise, I mean, physical, that's my goal. But also not to worry too much because I think the stress got to me too. So yeah, don't worry about anything in the past and don't worry about the future just stay present yeah i think that's the that's one thing that i'm trying to focus on this year yeah happy new year enjoy <laughs> we've been hearing from john madeline marcos mia hudson and yodine with their new year's wishes and hopes you can let us know about your new year's resolutions by calling the conversation and leaving a message on our talkback line 808-792-8217 Doki, that's it for this Aloha Friday. Next week, we talk about aquaculture from seaweed innovation, a kind of beano for cows, to seahorses, taco, and abalone, too. Our program is produced by Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, Savannah Harriman Pote, and Stephanie Hahn. Backyard quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Our theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. <laughs>